you so much for being Patreon supporters of The Katie Helper Show. As promised, here is our extended interview with Nathan Robinson, the editor of Current Affairs, a great print and online magazine. He talks to me about several articles he wrote about the normalization of George Bush, how Trump will be normalized shortly enough, why Bernie can and will win, his book on Bill Clinton, and his book on Donald Trump. Hey, Nathan? Hi. Hi, great. Okay, cool. So you know what, Nathan, tell us about what Mm. you do, because I kind of can't follow it because you're pretty accomplished. Plus, you have the British accent on top of that, which makes you seem even more accomplished than you are. And you are already (laughs) accomplished. But um, tell us about your useful trick. It is right. Uh, I'm going to have to perfect mine. But tell me, tell us about you have a law degree, but you're also a sociology student. Uh, Sort of. Yeah. I I mean, I'm in a graduate program. Technically, I don't show up very much these days, but I, uh, I am a PhD student. Yeah. Okay. So are you like cheating or playing hooky or is this some kind of. I'm I'm technically writing my dissertation. It's coming along. And what's your dissertation? Uh, uh, it's actually about uh, DSA. Um, it's, uh, it's about the internal politics of, uh, uh, of DSA. Um, uh, so that should be fascinating. But it's very ill-formed right now. Uh, DSA or your dissertation? That, that my, 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 my dissertation. My dissertation is making very slow progress. Is that a metaphor for the reformist nature of uh, DSA? Maybe if it were like a more radical organization, you'd be making really fast progress. I don't think there are any circumstances under which I would be making fast <laughs> okay, progress got it. on so, my okay. academic work. Um, because mo- most of what I do at the moment is just running the magazine. So tell us about current affairs. Mm. Yeah, well, that's my baby. That's that's my true passion yeah. is uh, current affairs. We... Uh, well, we are a small print magazine based in New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, we've been going for uh, a couple of years now, uh, even though thanks to our uh, <laughs> our respectable name, people often think we've been going for much longer and a, a sort of age-old institution. Right. Um, it's almost like the British accent of titles. Exactly. Yeah. You know, current affairs, and people go, ah, current exactly. affairs. Yeah, yeah. Of course. I respect the opinions of current affairs. Right. And, um, so we started. We started with a crowdfunding campaign at the end of 2015, and two zero one five or sorry, 2015 or 16. 2015. Okay, I got think. it. Think, yeah, 2015. As in the fight for, as yeah. in the thing that Hillary Clinton did not support and Bernie did. Hey yo, sorry. Right. Full circle. Yeah. <laughs> True. Uh, and then the crowdfunding. So we raised some. We raised some money on that, and then uh, we now we've managed to, and then it just took off, and now we've managed to put out. We're working on issue 15, um, and we're going out all around the country and to 20 different countries, shipping Whoa. internationally, and it's been remarkable. And So you could call uh, this the yeah. fight for 15, your next issue, because you're fighting for your, you know, it's you're true. working we to put out your... Fight. We're always fighting yeah. to get to the... It always is a struggle to get to the next issue, right. because this is the thing about running a magazine that I didn't even realize when I started, is that it's not like, if you write a book... You, you you get done with the book right. and then it's and then it's over and then you get to go do something else. The moment that you finish one issue of the magazine, you are late with the next right. issue of the magazine. Kind of like a podcast, but written. It never ends. Right. 
And you guys actually have a podcast now, part as you recently launched your podcast. Yeah, we're a competitor to you now. Oh, no, 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 no. We were just, no, we're, uh, it's a full, no divide and conquer, please. No, no, no. Solidarity among all left podcasts. Exactly. Mutual support. Um, and it's called Current Affairs? It's called Current Affairs. Concurrent Affairs is the satirical name we use for our imaginary sister publication uh, whenever we want to put out something that we don't want to use the current affairs name for. Oh, okay, because I heard a great episode about Kavanaugh's memory lapses. What's we her wanted name? to do a parody of the got serial it. type investigative oh, podcast. Oh, got it. It was, pretty, it was really good, actually. And, and it was fun, yeah. uh, but we thought in order to make clear that it was a little bit satirical, right. we, would, we would do it through concurrent got affairs. Got it, okay, yeah. Um, but yeah, so the main podcast is Current Affairs, and it comes out, the main episodes come out every other week, uh, and those are the kind of serious ones, and then we do a bunch of bonus episodes where we just blather about whatever's on our mind. Nice. How did you have the idea to, to start uh, Current Affairs? Um, well, I mean, I was very uh, adrift in graduate school, and I, I had been doing a lot of freelance writing and also writing these weird little satirical children's books. Right. And... I, 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 thought, I sort of wondered whether there was a way that I could combine the serious political writing with the, the ridiculous satirical children's books. And, uh, and also, I, I thought we could do a kind of different left magazine, something a little more fun, a little more relaxed, um, so that it didn't take itself too seriously. And, you know, frankly, I was just inspired by what they managed to do at Jacobin. Mm. Um, but it was really amazing because it made me realize that you can actually do print in mm. at the moment. And you can make print really good right. and you can succeed. And that was just shocking. And, and I was, have oh great God. art, too. Yeah. yeah. And it can be beautiful and people right. will buy it. And print isn't dead. Uh, right. So... We stole, I mean, we didn't steal, actually. I, well, one thing is, Bosco was really, really helpful oh, and great. very generous in um, in supporting us. Uh, so I, I'm always grateful to Jacobin. That's Bosco Sintara, uh, the um, yeah. editor of Jacobin, yeah. Founder and editor of Jacobin. Founder, yeah. and, and really, really a generous guy. And... Um, to us, and we just we used. We, so we, we, I was like, who 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 prints your magazine? Who does your website? Right. And we just uh, hired those people. <laughs> and, nice. Uh, and uh, just did everything. Like it, it was. It was to the point where in the first days of current affairs, I was going into the internal system and I was changing all the emails that say thank you for subscribing from thank you for subscribing to Jacobin Love uh, Buck, uh, to nice. thank you for subscribing to current affairs. This is for me. So we really did lift this. <laughs> what you should do is thank you for subscribing to Current Affairs Love Boscar. Yeah. Just, just use his name. I'm sure he wouldn't mind. Why is Current Affairs necessary? How is it different from Jacobin? I, I describe us as the Bakunin to Jacobin's marks. Okay. Um, I like that. We are a little more, we place ourselves a little more in the anarchist socialist tradition. Okay. Um, uh, which means we're a little more... Uh, I feel like we are a little less academic. Uh, I feel like we are a little less Marx-influenced right. um, and a little more, uh, I, I, I don't know, a, a little, a, not crazier, but if you look at our print edition, it's weird. <laughs> right, and you have satire in it, too. There's a lot of, yeah, we got parody advertisements right. and games and puzzles and things to cut out. 
which you know, Jack, I love them, but you know, they you know they don't they don't have puzzles. So usually, except for um, like figuring out Marxism, maybe so that's a puzzle, but of a different kind. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, yeah, figuring out how to build a how to build a socialist society. But the biggest puzzle of all. Tell us about the different people who write for Current Affairs and edit our editors at Current Affairs. Yeah, so we've got a team, a great team of people now. We took we sort of when we started, it was basically just me and my roommate, uh, Oren Nimney, who is our legal editor. Um, but slowly, we have amassed uh, as as I found incredible people. Um, we have we have actually built a, a real editorial team. So and, and they've come to us in different ways. Um, people I've met on the internet, like misconnections, uh, Craigslist. Just kidding. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, uh, Vanessa B, our social media editor. Um, you know, one there's a couple people that I knew from various parts of my life. Sometimes I'll read something where I'll go, "Oh my God, this person has the current affairs voice. They have it." And right. then I'll get in touch with them. This is um, like for, for the, our editor Brianna Rennick, who is a senior editor. I, I I just read an article she wrote online. I had no idea who she was, and then I got in touch with her. And I went, "No, you have to, you have to be part of this magazine. You're perfect. Right. You got the perfect tone." Um, and she was like, "Who are you? Uh, I run this thing. You got to be part of it. You have to." And right. now she is. So I yeah. Do that. you guys have like a, a Brianna quota? Because it's funny. Out of let's see, one, two, three, four. Five, six, seven. You have eight editors. Two are named Brianna, although they're spelled differently. You have Brianna Renix, B R I N N A, and then Brianna Joy Gray, big friend of the show. B I B R I H N A. Sorry, yeah, creates confusion, right? It creates confusion. We we uh, we we've, we've changed it so that Brianna Gray goes by Bree right. internally, and Brianna Renix also goes by Renix. So oh, I like Nice. Um, but what and worse than our Bri- than our sort of overrepresentation of Brianna's is our overrepresentation of lawyers. Yeah. Because I think out of our eight core editors, seven are lawyers. Oh my gosh! So let's see: uh, Nathan Robinson, lawyer, right? I'm a lawyer. Brianna yeah. Renix, lawyer. Lyda Gold, not a lawyer. Okay, good. Just use your affirmative action hire. Um, <laughs> Vanessa B. Lawyer. Oren me obviously, legal editor. Lawyer. Sparky Abraham. Lawyer. Yasmin Nair. Oh, she's not a lawyer, but, right. uh, but Yasmin's a contributing editor. Okay, editor at large, uh, yeah. He's not really involved, yeah. Uh, or an editor at large, yeah. And uh, Brianna Joy Gray, lawyer, we know that. Yeah, definitely a lawyer. Totally right. a lawyer. So. Cool. So you got two non-lawyers, two affirmative action hires. Cool. Yeah, two. two. Yasmin, I got, yeah, sorry, I forgot. I forgot yeah, but, it's okay. Um, I forgive you. <laughs> uh, uh, so yeah, and Pete Davis, who hosts our podcast, is also a lawyer. So it's it's terrible. It's real bad. Yeah. Um. And uh, yeah, the art is really beautiful. And I'm actually going to have Malika on Malika Jabali, who wrote a piece called "The Color of Economic Anxiety: Is the Collapse of Democratic Fortunes Due to Economic Anxiety?" Of course, just mm-hmm. ask Black Milwaukeeans, which is a great. I'm excited to have her on. You've also written a book called Super Predator, Bill Clinton's Use and Abuse of Black America. So can you oh, talk yeah. about that? Another knee slapper. Just um, kidding. Yeah. So uh, Bill Clinton is, in my opinion, a, a deeply horrible person mm-hmm. who... Um, Understatement. Uh, <laughs> uh, sort of manipulated and it, it, it people throughout his life right. um, in a way that I find pretty despicable. And... Um, 
So the book Super President is specifically zeroing in on Bill Clinton's relationship with Black America and looking at the pol- looking at his policies and looking at particularly the ways that he made promises and broke them in a way that he he kind of um, gave people a, the offer they couldn't refuse. Where and there's been a lot there's a lot of talk about this where you know Bill Clinton was like, oh well, if the Democrats run on Republican policies, then we'll get some Republican voters and also. Democratic voters will have nowhere to go, so they'll have to vote for us too, and then we can win forever. Right, uh, which is a strategy, the firewall. Um, but it's a strategy that advances you rather than any actual good things in the world. Right, um, and I just thought of it. The things on race, there were so many of them, and as I started seeing them, I wanted to pull pull a lot of them together. Um, and so it talks about it talks about crime. It talks about welfare. It talks about the betrayal of black appointees to uh, Jocelyn Elders and Lonnie Guinier. Uh It talks about the execution of Ricky Ray Richter. Right. Um, it talks about Clinton's approach to Haiti. Mm. Um, and so I, I, I sort of got to compile all of those things into. And the, and the broader point is that it's about a political approach that I think uh, that I think we all have to reject, which is an approach that speaks in highfalutin moralistic rhetoric and then sells people out when it's politically advantageous. Right. And uh, and I think understanding how that works and how he did that and making sure that we don't uh, ever put people in power who do that is, I think, extremely important. Um, talk about the cover uh, image uh, of the book, the, oh, the photo yeah. that's on the cover of the book. Well, you know, when I put that on the cover, that photo had been sort of rarely shared since the 90s. I, I couldn't really find it online. Um, but it's a photo of Bill Clinton giving a speech in front of a, a group of mostly black prison inmates in jumpsuits. Mm-hmm. And it was part of, it's from 1992, and it's from the campaign where he went to Stone Mountain, Georgia, uh, but, you know, birthplace of the reemergence of the Klan, uh, a place of deep symbolic meaning. And right. it turns out there was a tiny little prison facility at the foot of the, at the foot of Stone Mountain. And it was on a, on a street named after a Klan leader and, Bill Clinton went with a group of Southern Democrats who are like Southern Democrats. Right. But, um, and Bill Clinton gave a speech, and it was designed to you know make uh, designed to make Bill Clinton look tough on crime, and designed to uh, make Southern white people feel as if he wouldn't hesitate. He didn't have any qualms about standing in front of a group of black men in prison jumpsuits and, and proudly talking about his record on crime. Right. Um, I think it was illustrative of this, of this, this sort of approach um, uh, that he used. And, and I think it think really shows you how he, I mean, he's literally, when I say use and abuse of black America, he's literally using black people in chains as a backdrop. Right. So it's a chain gang, right? Um, yeah, they're not they're not chained together, but they are uh, they are in formation uh, lined up in this, right. this facility. You dedicate the book to um, oh, yeah. the eight hundred thousand. They will never be forgotten. So I talk. I have a chapter of the book where I talk about. I said use and abuse of Black America, but I also think um, 
I, I often talk about Rwanda and, and, and Africa. Um, and I have a chapter called Clinton in Africa. And um, we, I think, regardless of your position on, quote, humanitarian intervention, um, uh, the way that the Clinton administration dealt with the Rwandan genocide should be one of the real dark marks on the Democratic Party's history. Because when you actually look at the record, Bill Clinton has distorted the record in, in talking about what they did uh, after the fact. Uh, he suggested, well, you know, we we didn't really know. Uh, we could have acted, but, you know, it was all confusing. Well, I went back and I read through the newspapers from mm. the time that the Rwanda genocide was unfolding. It was very clear. And it was on the front page every day, and people were begging the Clinton administration to act. And, uh, you know, why why aren't they acting? Um, what's going on here? And what worse than not acting is that the Clinton administration actually denied the genocide while it was going on and 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 refused to call it a genocide, even though it was obviously a genocide, and pressured other countries into not calling it a genocide. So it was an act of genocide denial that prevented the international community from acting, and that's, um, that, that seems to me pretty, pretty horrific. <laughs> He did. He, you know, he gets credit for apologizing because on a 1990, I'm reading from Quartz, uh, on a 1998 state visit to Kigali, the Rwandan capital, Clinton formally apologized for U.S. inaction. Quote, it may seem strange to you here, especially the many of you who lost members of your family, but all over the world, there were people like me sitting in offices day after day after day who did not fully appreciate the depth and speed with which uh -huh. you were being engulfed by this unimaginable terror. So, yeah. so this is so. There's about apologies that yeah. are self-serving apologies, course, yeah. where you shouldn't really. No one should get apology points if right. their apology manipulates the facts so mm. that they sound better in the apology than the truth. Right. It's like um, a mea non culpa. Yeah. Right. And Brett Kavanaugh did a bunch of these, which I, I talked about. Um, so he's like, "Oh, did I drink occasionally in high yeah. school? Maybe." And I'm sorry if I had lapses, you know. Right. But uh, this too. He said, you know, I I'm sorry that, but I didn't know. And you go, well, if you didn't know, then you don't really have anything to be sorry for. Right. But he did know, and he's manipulating the facts. They knew. We know they knew. We know. Uh, and this is what made me so angry that I had to write the book. Is all these times where Bill Clinton distorts the historical record in order to, in his apologies, in order to make people, and then people go, oh, no, you don't have to apologize. This is also what abusers do, right, is that they, um, oh, yeah. they, they play themselves. They go, I'm so sorry. I'm an awful person. I can't believe I did this tiny thing. Um, and it was actually a very serious thing. And you go, no, you don't have to apologize for the tiny right. thing. Uh, but yeah. Well, another thing he does is that so later on, I guess, in nine, in 2013, I think, on CNBC, mm. he said, if we'd gone in sooner, I believe we could have saved at least a third of the lives that were lost. And he goes, it had an enduring impact on me, which is like peak Bill Clinton, because when he was interviewed by Craig Melvin on MSNBC about his book and asked about Monica Lewinsky in the context of Me Too and asked if he would have done anything differently. And it, I don't know if you saw yeah. this. His defensiveness was unbelievable. Mm -hmm. It was shocking. But he said, no one thinks I got away with that. Like, I was, blah, blah, I left the White House, blah, 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 in debt. And it's just, he's just so entitled. Um, it's pretty unbelievable. So, you know, every now and then I, I forget that, like, 
I mean, Bill, the thing about Bill Clinton is sometimes I'll be like, oh, he didn't mean to say that. Like once he said something about it was during 2016 and he referred to something he referred to the awful legacy of the last eight years. And people were offended because mm-hmm. they thought that he was referring to the Obama administration and the Obama, Obama presidency. And I remember being like, well, he may not be. And then I was like, wait, this is Bill Clinton. Every single word he uses is deliberate, yeah. premeditated. I mean, the guy's a Rhodes Scholar, right? He's like masterful with and words. And a lawyer. <laughs> and a lawyer, right. And so, you know, there's never any, you, there, you really you shouldn't give him the benefit of the doubt, not just because, like, I'm not saying that to be punitive, although I'm not a fan of his, but it's just not supported by the record, so to speak. Well, it, yeah, this is Mr. Depends what the meaning of is is. Right. This is a guy who is very, very careful with his language. And in fact, I use some examples of the way that he's tricked people by using intentionally uh, vague language. Like, for example, the example I cite is that he told civil rights groups that he was pained by the the crack powder sentencing disparity, um, which, you know, infamously uh, was more punitive towards African-Americans because of the, the differing tendencies of use. And he said he was pained by that and he would work to fix it. Well, when he was asked, how would you propose to fix it? He later was like, well, I think we should escalate sentences for powder cocaine. So they match crack cocaine. He said, well, that's not what people will ask you for. Right. <laughs> that's worse. That's right. just more tough on crime. Right. So I mean, it's, like, oh, it, yeah. yes, I think this is bad. It's <laughs> a funny, I mean, that is, I, I think we see that a lot, actually. We see that in kind of the discourse. It's much more understandable when, for instance, you know, you see a white kid get away with something because they have affluenza, right? And the same judge that mm. lets that that lets that be the defense will pub will sentence a black. I think di- I mean did sentence a black teenager to something much more was much more punitive in his sentencing, um, and it wasn't as uh, as much of a crime, right? Mm-hmm. There's this kind of race to the bottomism, right? Where where we think the the solution to uh, having a two tiered justice system is to be harder on privileged people. Right. And of course, which is what I think was behind Bill Clinton's thing, right? And powder cocaine is, of course, the richer, whiter drug. Yeah. So I get, but it's very tricky. And it's kind of, a, it's like, it's like, I get um, racial and economic inequality. And the solution is to invest more in a racist and classist system as opposed to less. So like, but, ultimately, yeah. the project is a racist yeah. classist one. It just like, on a very individual level, and an optics level too. It seems like it's a. It's almost like reparations. Okay. And you say, I mean, Clinton did this. Too. I mean, I document a ton of it. The book's got like seven hundred endnotes, and I document a ton of instances in which Clinton says something that is designed to mislead people into thinking that he's going to take a different step uh, than he actually. Right. Takes. Well, the sexual relations, of course, is a famous, right? Yeah. Famous example of him saying he didn't have sexual relations with that. Woman, and then as you said, depends what like, is. Well, is. what is sexual relations anyway? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And of course, you know what sexual relations oh. are? They were like the sodomy laws that you, as I think, attorney general, that were passed yeah. in Arkansas when he was attorney general. So, okay, what about the super predator, which is the title of your book, is a reference to Hillary Clinton, but the focus of the of your book is Bill Clinton. Yeah. So, what's the relationship between the two? Well, with, on this uh, issue. I mean, Hillary Clinton was a strong supporter during the 1990s of all of the Clinton administration's politics, and they were often 
treated as if they were sort of co-presidents, and we know that uh, they have a marriage in which they actually are a, a, a pretty mutually supportive of one another. Um, and so Hillary Clinton's super predator comment came in the course of justifying Clinton administration crime policy. Um, so this this was something that both Bill and Hillary Clinton pushed. And, uh, you know, eventually when it became politically toxic after Black Lives Matter, uh, both disavowed it. But I, I think the damage was really done, and it was done by both of them. Uh, it was done by Hillary Clinton saying the super predator remark, and it was done by Bill Clinton signing into law the, the policy. And people talk about the crime bill, which is one important part of it, but there were so many other bills and, uh, and administrative actions. Uh, the Clinton administration uh, kicked people out of public housing uh, for drug use. Uh, the Clinton wow. administration passed the Prison Litigation Reform Reform Act, which prevented prisoners from filing lawsuits about their uh, condition. Whoa! Uh, the yeah, they limited the you know if if you were being abused in prison, they limited the remedies you could get in court. They passed the Effective Death Penalty Act, right. which sped up the process of killing people. So, you know, and all of these all of these things Hillary Clinton stood by Bill Clinton for and and sometimes in the case of Super President publicly endorsed. Um so they're a team. <laughs> what is the justification for that? What was the thing that you said that makes it Prison harder for people to act. Yeah. Uh, uh, frivolous lawsuits, they said, you know, prisoners filing frivolous lawsuits. Oh, uh, frivolous lawsuits, right, it's always that, yeah, yeah, kind of like, I love the ones where people actually, I really, honestly, I can't get over this, but the the efforts to limit appeals when it's a death penalty, it's only like the most serious thing ever, I mean, it's only like a matter of life and death. Right, and the thing is that, I mean, one thing is, courts decide whether it's frivolous or not, these things... The, the, the passing legislation, the reason passing legislation is so ridiculous is because if the appeal has no merit, the court tosses it, it, tosses it out anyway. Right. Uh, there are already laws. So these lawsuits aren't succeeding unless they, there was some violation of the law. So there's no need to limit the lawsuit because that's what the whole point of filing the lawsuit is to see if it's for the judge to evaluate that. Right. So, and what do you say to the argument that, um, well, Hillary Clinton had no choice and, and I mean, th- there are two things. One is that I, I think that this argument is very silly, but the, it's, it was Bill Clinton, not Hillary Clinton, which that's fine. But when you run somewhat on your husband's legacy, which she did, you can't really make that argument. I, I think Hillary Clinton is a person with agency. Too. Yes. Yeah. And, as I say, she was a powerful figure in the Clinton right. administration. She, yes. She, she, she was not a a, a shy, a shrinking like domestic wife. Right. Wife. Like she, they, they were a team. Right. She's a powerful. Right. Woman. Exactly. Yes, Queen. Um, and she and she endorsed the administration's policies. And afterwards, it's not like she went through and said, "Okay, now I'm out of the White House. I hereby disavow this, 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 and that." You know, as she said, she doesn't sit sit home baking cookies. Um, she said that I remember well, when she didn't. Yeah, yeah, and good on her for not. Yeah, yeah, and but it means that you're responsible and you have to be accountable. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Why we're not going to infantilize her. So why did you focus on Bill? So this book came out in 2016. Yeah, pre-election. And so wh- I'm just curious, why was it focused on Bill and not Hillary? 
Or not both well, of them, I, I should mean, say. Yeah. Because I think that focusing on Bill tells you a lot of things. I mean, what we had here was the he was record the too, of the right. Clinton presidency. Right. Uh, and I think by going through that record, you can see what we might call Clintonian politics, right. what they actually produce in practice. So it was right. kind of lessons from the last time a Clinton was in power. And I, I, I didn't want to write an attack of, on Hillary Clinton. Um, I, I, I thought people, I, I didn't want to necessarily, it is Bill Clinton's legacy, but they, they were the politics that Hillary Clinton was running on. Sure. I thought, well, it was a good time to review this legacy, and people could interpret the meaning of that for 2016 however they want. People were probably more receptive to it, Hillary fans. Yeah. I also, uh, yes, and I think I wanted to be a little careful. I mean, I knew that that election was going to be real close, yeah. and I wanted to be cautious about contributing to undermining Hillary Clinton for the left. I wrote a thing saying if you lived in a swing state, you needed to vote for her. Same, yeah. Um, I mean, I said that, too, yeah. Yeah, which seems obvious. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and so, uh, and, and also, again, it's Bill Clinton's record. So, um, you know, I, I, I think, it, and I thought it was a good way to discuss the issues that were relevant in the context of the 2016 campaign, even though, I mean, Hillary Clinton was running prospectively instead of retrospectively, but oh, it's a good parable and, and quite relevant without being a sort of direct attack on Hillary Clinton. Oh, did you get pushback, by the way? I got pushback from both sides. I was called like a Bernie or bus person, which I wasn't. And then I also was attacked from the sensible left. I don't <laughs> even know if that's appropriate, but attacked for saying vote for um, Hillary Clinton in a swing state. Yeah. Oh, yeah. no, simultaneously a neoliberal shill and a Bernie bro. Exactly, yeah, <laughs> it's good. I mean, although I do identify as Bernie bro, but it's the Bernie or Bruss thing. You know, I've reappropriated the Bernie bro term. Yeah. The, the interesting thing that I found in 2016 was I don't get called much by the Clinton people. I didn't get much pushback on anything because I found that what they did was just ignore everything we said. So when we wrote this, we wrote this uh, article that got very popular in February that was saying Trump's going to be president yeah. unless you nominate Sanders. February 2016 called, unless the Democrats run Sanders, a Trump nomination means a Trump presidency. And what do you know? And what do you know, right. <laughs> and I was just going to ask you about that. that yeah. It got shared all over the place. And I thought I'd get a bunch of Hillary people coming at me for it. I didn't. They just ignored it. I think the reason they ignored it is because it made pretty strong arguments, arguments that, well, I mean, just in retrospect, I'm not, I don't mean to sound immodest here, but they were correct. Right. The arguments were correct. <laughs> and and it was very difficult to come up with a counter-argument, so I just uh, sort of pretended that it wasn't there. Plus, they probably didn't want to publicize it because they didn't want to share something no. that made the case, right? Not only could they not mm -hmm. push against it, but they probably didn't want to give it oxygen. Can you summarize your argument there? And the argument was, I mean, it's not going to be unfamiliar to people now that everything in it has happened. Right, but, but this was February, uh, so. It was a suggestion in February that Hillary Clinton had very unique weaknesses mm -hmm. against Donald Trump specifically uh, that yeah. Trump would exploit. That uh, it was, she provided a very good opportunity. She played to his strengths, which are like dragging everything in down into scandal and innuendo, the FBI investigation, you know, the email thing, he's going to make hay out of that. Um, 
going to bring up all the scandals of the 1990s, going to bring up all Bill Clinton's sex stuff. Yeah. And it, and it was unique, and and that she wouldn't be, and that he would run to her left on the Iraq War, which he did, and TPP, um, and, and yeah, and, and trade, and she wouldn't have a good way to respond to right. it because ultimately she'd be in the wrong, um, and it would be kind of a, a, a total mess, and that Sanders didn't provide the same opportunities for Trump, even though Sanders might be the weakest candidate against a conventional Republican yeah. like Marco Rubio. Uh, against Trump, he was obviously the stronger candidate. I agree. I mean, because you have also the establishment beltway politics, right? The the status quo. So that's something mm-hmm. Trump ran against. Hillary clearly couldn't run against, and Sanders. But Sanders could. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and so Sanders could defeat Trump's fake populism yeah. with real populism. Right. Exactly. And it could speak to Trump voters in a way that Hillary Clinton never could. Again, everyone knows this now, but it's right. February 2016. You know um, what, though? I'm really surprised because not everyone does. And I said, like, I actually think this is totally anecdotal. But I find that m- many more men who supported H- Hillary Clinton during the, the primary have said to me, you know what, you were right, or you know what, people were right about Bernie's electability. Many more men have said that than women. To me, mm-hmm. totally not, not, I have no statistical uh, empirical evidence for this. But yeah, I mean, I think what your argument is also so honest because you're not saying Sanders is an inherently more electable, although obviously no. the scandal stuff is there and doesn't change. But, you know, when you say Sanders versus Trump is not the same as Sanders versus Rubio. And I think right. that's really true. The status quo issue is, is very significant. And you write, instinctively, Hillary Clinton has long seen by far the, you wrote in 2016, instinctively, Hillary Clinton has long seen by far the more electable of the two Democratic candidates. She is, after all, an experienced, pragmatic moderate, whereas Sanders is a raving arm, is a raving, arm-flappingly elderly Jewish socialist from Vermont. Clinton is simply closer to the American mainstream. Thus, she is more attractive to a broader swath of voters. Sanders campaigners have grown used to hearing the heavy-hearted lament, I like Bernie, I just don't think he can win. And in typical previous American elections, this would be perfectly accurate. That is so annoying. And you know what? This is the thing. I still hear people saying that. I like Bernie, which is like the fakest thing. There is that, the like... The classic trope where I used to like Bernie or look, I like Bernie, but one of the most viral pieces about that was like on Medium. I wrote about this actually. It it was written by like a hedge fund lawyer, which is just so funny when she's like, look, I, I like Bernie. Yeah, you never like Bernie. She literally defended like Chilean, like rich, like Chilean aristocrats who were like prosecuted for like kidnapping their nanny, basically. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Anyway, I do find that people keep saying that. They're like, even now, he could, you know, they they say, this is one of the the common refrains, he wasn't vetted, they say. Yeah. He wasn't vetted, and Hillary was. A socialist couldn't have won, um, and a Jew couldn't have won. And, of course, the irony there, I've I've said this before, but uh, if you want to make that point about the Jew, uh, that's okay, but... I feel like a lot of the people who make that point wouldn't have conceded that about women because we do live in a sexist country, right? Right. And also not only that, but they would have yeah. called you sexist and misogynist for even saying that. Yeah, if you go, well, we shouldn't run Hillary Clinton because she's a woman and I'm not sexist, but the yeah. country is. <laughs> people find that appalling and, and with some merit. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, that is a hard line to to walk, right? Because the truth is, like, there is entrenched and... Um, 
institutionalized and racism and sexism and then um, implicit bias and all that stuff. But and this sounds weird with our politics because our analysis is more structural, obviously, than like individual based. But, you know, elections are popularity contests. And so you did see someone like Obama who was able to rise above that stuff in a way a lot of other black men couldn't have. Mm-hmm. And there are women who could have won. Anyway, when did you discover the Hillary Clinton prison labor thing? Oh, uh, was... I have written about that. Right. I did write an article about that, and it is in the book. I can't, I can't remember yeah. when, I, when I discovered it. One unusual aspect of living in the Arkansas governor's mansion was getting to know prison inmates who were assigned to work in the house and the yard. When we moved in, I was told that using prison labor at the governor's mansion was a long-standing tradition that kept down costs, and I was assured that the inmates were carefully screened. But it was one of these things where when I did read about it, I, I just I thought it was so interesting that she she just talked about it so casually. Yeah, she was exactly. like, oh, there was these lovely African-Americans who yeah. were imprisoned, and they came and they worked for us in our in the governor's mansion. Right. Like, wait a second, imprisoned African Americans who can't leave and do free labor in a southern mansion. Right. I've heard this before. Yeah, exactly. What? This yeah. sounds familiar. The weirdest response to that was like, I get the response that you could say, "Look, this is what everyone did." Like. I don't know whether it's a, a response I agree with, but it has an internal logic to it and coherence. What I don't get is like people actually pretended like that people only thought it was bad because it was Hillary, which is just an absurd thing to say. Yeah, okay, that's, that's ridiculous. And also, the thing is, uh, she wrote about it. The whole reason we know about it is because she right. wrote about it in her memoir. Right. Ah long after the fact. Exactly, right. Um, so she was comfortable enough with House it. Even. So she was comfortable enough with it to not see it as a shameful thing. Yeah. Right. Looking back on it, she didn't find anything problematic right. about it whatsoever. She even said <laughs> that she was apprehensive. I remember hearing the reading it and she said she was apprehensive. So I thought, oh, so she had some awareness. No, she was apprehensive about it, not because of the politics or what it meant about the prisoners. It was a safety issue. Yeah, she was scared of them. Yeah. Now, I had defended several clients in criminal cases, but seeing them in jail or in court was not the same as encountering a convicted murderer in the kitchen every morning. I was apprehensive, but I agreed to abide by tradition until I had a chance to see for myself. I learned a lot as I got to know the inmates better. We enforced the rules strictly and sent back to prison any inmate who broke one. You do a lot of, like, real re- research. I mean, it's, like, both with the Kavanaugh thing and, and with this, you kind of find things before other people do. All these, like, people are paid to be covering this story. There are things that you would expect other people to find. What, what's funny is that I really don't do much research. Um, I, I don't, I mean, I don't do what I consider to be research research, right? So I'm not buried in archives. Right. It's just literally I'm transcripts. Not- or books. I'm not going all around the country interviewing right. people. Right. Uh, I mean, I don't really do any original journalism. And this is what's striking is the research I do is like doing a Lexus search for newspaper articles from the 90s. Or, uh, I, or I actually just read the thing. I'm like, well, what, what? let's read Hillary Clinton's memoir, see if there's anything in here. Uh, right. Let's read it closely. Um, the Kavanaugh thing, 
was, okay, let me give, let me read his testimony closely right. and compare everything to the facts. It's just so brazen and shameless. And did you read the Susan Collins? Did you read her comments? I, I didn't. By that point, I was just so exhausted with Kavanaugh stuff that I was like, I, I, I just don't want to hear well, it. Well, my favorite part of that was when she actually said she was like defending his record and saying that she didn't think he would be as the reactionary, you know, activist judge that we all know he is. And she actually said, mentioned same gender marriage. It's like, okay, Susan Collins, we get it. You're woke. You say same gender marriage, not same sex marriage. That's impressive. But it's like, why don't you just like, we'll let you say same sex marriage if you vote against conf- confirming the the sexual assaulter. Yeah. That was like peak weaponization of identity politics, pseudo-wokeness. I couldn't get over it. <laughs> so you also wrote a book about Trump. What do you, how are you so yeah, efficient? Do you like not sleep? How are you so prolific? Oh, no, I, I, say. I get my eight hours a night. I just don't really do much of anything else. Okay, nice. All right, cool. <laughs> I, 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 I have a very relaxed kind of an existence. It just consists mostly of sitting in the office writing stuff. Okay. Nice. Um, so, uh, but I'm not a particularly hard worker. You sit on a porch life. with uh, drinking mint juleps and uh, whatever else happens and, in and New Orleans. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, they sit out on the balcony, and I write, and that's my existence. Um, Yeah, so it's called Anatomy of a Monstrosity, and um, I, (laughs) you know, I got a lot of people, when I wrote the Clinton book, I, thank God Clinton, but you don't write about Trump, he's he's so much worse. Why are you always writing about, you know, why is the left a circular firing squad? Yeah, and part of it is, well, I think there's value in critiquing our side because we can actually improve. Exactly, Uh, (laughs) and we're supposed to be the good ones. When we critique the left, it's constructive criticism. The whole reason for doing it is because we can actually change it. You know, it's just just satisfying to go out to the right. Okay, I also do think that a lot of the criticisms of Trump are scattershot. People criticize everything. Yeah. you know, everything from his demeanor to his taxes to just whatever. Russia, Russia, and Russia, so Russia, Putin, Putin, Putin. Russia, Putin. oh God, oh yeah, right. Russia. And, right. and I, uh, all right, let me focus, let me try, I, if I write a Trump book, I want to focus on the things that I think are actually important about Trump. So it goes through, it goes through his life, I do a, a sort of biography of him, and I go through his Trump as a boss, Trump as a capitalist, Trump as a man who exploited his workers and was a terrible racist landlord. And Trump is a person who has just uh, screwed people over for his entire life, whether through Trump University, um, whether through his properties or whether through, you know, tons and tons of ways. And and also, I go through Trump's relationships with, with women and the various abusive things he's done, uh, the various gross things like spying on underage girls naked in the Miss Universe dressing room, and trying to compile the things that I think, the things that if you actually showed them to a person who supported Trump but was still a human being, um, would make them go, okay, yeah, that I really can't defend that. Right. Uh, 
And, and so trying to make what I thought was a strong left case against Trump. And also, a large part of the book is I, I, I kind of pull a bait and switch because a large part of the book is actually about uh, why Hillary Clinton failed to beat Donald Trump and how you could beat Donald Trump. And speaking of which, so so what are the issues, like, if you would say the top couple of issues that that are that Trump is vulnerable to? Because, like, I don't think any of his, like, I actually don't think the grabbing women by the pussy stuff, like, is going to work because people already kind of stood by that? I don't think it works on its own. I think it works as part of a coherent narrative about Trump. A smorgasbord? Right. I think it's important. I actually do think it's important that he does this to women. But I think it's important as part of the general point that he just treats people like shit. And he doesn't care about people. And he's this selfish, disgusting human being who will lie to you and will promise you things and then will abuse you if it suits him. Right. Um, and I think the, the big point, the easy way to target Trump is over the phony populism, is over the massive tax cuts for rich people. That's what I think it is. Um, it's the, and it's like not keeping the jobs, not protecting American workers. Yeah. It's a bit, you know, it's like a little bit like um, not my style, like not our lane. It's a teeny bit. It's not xenophobic at all, but it's a little bit more like jingoistic than I'm comfortable with. But I still think it's really effective. And you can link that to real progressive arguments. I, I ran an interview with Steve Bannon recently, and it was interesting to me because it was the one time I've seen Steve Bannon get really uncomfortable and not know what to say. Mm. And it was because the interviewer said to him, well, you are crusading against these elites, but how is Betsy DeVos not right. just obviously an elite? Right. She's and the sister of got, uh, Eric Prince, Blackwater guy. And, yeah. And, and, yeah, and she's an, she's never worked a job, I right. don't think. Like, she just inherited all of her money and yet is now in charge of the nation's school system. Right. And Steve Bannon didn't have an answer. He goes, well, just because someone's a billionaire doesn't mean they're an elite. Yeah, she's real salt of the earth. I don't think right. anyone buys that shit. Like, I, I, I don't think ordinary people make that distinction between, like, elite. I, I think that he's, he will have a hard time selling that message, like Betsy DeVos is not the elite. Mm-hmm. Um, it just doesn't make sense to people. Um, and so if you go after them for that sort of thing, uh, they, re- they really do struggle. Yeah, they're draining the swamp. Mm-hmm. Look at these people. I know. Look at his cabinet. Right. They're swamp creatures, yeah. So you have a couple more uh, articles I just want to reference, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, a piece from June 2018 called There is Still Only One Clear Way to Get Rid of Trump. Yeah. Let's talk about that. And then I want to talk about the someday Donald Trump will be as respected as Ronald Reagan, <laughs> which is like so true and so disturbing. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the, the there's only one clear way to get rid of Donald Trump is a company with a big picture of Bernie Sanders. Um, right. Intent. Yeah. And it's, it's thinking prospectively about 2020 and thinking about you know, it's, it's going to be here sooner than you know it, and you need a candidate. <laughs> you actually have to run in this election, and you have to have someone in mind, and currently it's not looking good. 
And I think everyone needs to get over their ageism and just go, it might have to be money. So you say in this piece, needless to say, if your party contains a wildly popular politician with an enthusiastic fan base of young activists who is adept at speaking to the concerns of the Rust Belt states that lost you the election the last time around, it would seem criminally foolish not to nominate that person (laughs) as your presidential candidate. And he's definitely running, by the way. Oh, yeah. And you go through the different potential candidates... You say, but I also think the Democrats have almost no other good options. Every other candidate put forward is either uninspiring, deeply flawed, or both. Look, for instance, at Joe Biden. Biden has a terrible record on racial issues, a creepy history with women, and has said he has, quote, no empathy, end quote, for millennials suffering with debt and economic precariousness. Doesn't exactly seem like the right person to energize the Democratic base. Or look at Kamala Harris, who oversaw and defended an epidemic, quote unquote, epidemic of prosecutorial misconduct while serving as California's attorney general and accepted a donation from Steve Mnuchin after inexplicably failing to prosecute his former company for illegal mortgage foreclosures. When two of the most important issues to millennials are criminal justice reform and the unaccountable predation of the 1%, why would you nominate such a candidate? So Bernie 2020, huh? Yeah, very good points by me there. <laughs> yeah, well done. I, again, I read this a while ago, but I think, oh, yeah, that's true. Oh, well, this is a great thing, too, that you point out. You say, um, here's a rule. Never, ever give Donald Trump an opportunity to seize the moral high ground. If you think that just because Donald Trump is pro-law and order, he won't use Kamala Harris's record of defending prosecutorial misconduct against her, you do not understand Trump. He will have a field day with it. It will totally kill her ability to criticize Trump over criminal justice issues. He will read from the damning statements by federal judges about Harris's office, and he will be right. He'll do the same with Joe Biden and segregation or Cory Booker and Wall Street. Against Trump, you need someone whose past does not contain obvious instances of hypocrisy that they will struggle to explain. This is why Bernie has a unique advantage. He is probably the most principled and consistent of any U.S. politician. That might not actually be saying much. (laughs) Being the most principled politician is like being the most compassionate ICE agent. But he happens to be unusually committed and honest. There is one potential issue for Sanders, the controversy surrounding Jane Sanders and Burlington College. But I think that can be This can be gone past easily if it's dealt with honestly through the simple mission that Sanders screwed up and that's really hard to keep a cash-strapped small college afloat and sometimes you get overambitious and things don't work out. The only way this would be truly harmful is if Sanders tried to cover it up instead of explaining in a frank and sympathetic way. What you said is totally true with the Kamala Harris thing. We saw Trump do that with Hillary and the super predators, which Mm -hmm. is so clearly opportunistic. This is a guy who is upset that the Central Park Five got a settlement. Right. The guy couldn't be more racist, but he's like really good at that. And I call that woke Trump, where every now and then he says something woke. I mean, in a totally <laughs> opportunistic, disingenuous way. I, I mean, I just think when you go through the people are always speculating on 2020, but I think if you go seriously through the candidates, it's pretty obvious. You start narrowing them down, crossing them off the list, and you, you really do end up with Bernie's name alone. Uh, people talk about Elizabeth Warren, but I just don't think that's going to happen. Elizabeth Warren barely won her Senate seat in Massachusetts, of all places. Right. Uh, yeah. She's not a very good campaigner. You address the age thing. You say, let's talk briefly about age, because it's honestly the only serious argument against nominating Sanders. Sanders is old. Here again, though, I think we shouldn't think about abstract opponents, but the actual opponent. Trump is 72. Sanders is 76, which is still younger than some of the top Democratic Congress people. Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer. It's a four year difference. 
And sure, that difference matters, but Sanders seems to be in far better health than Trump. He can still play basketball for goodness sake. When did you last see Donald Trump running for a train? Health matters a lot more than the raw numbers of years somebody has been alive. There are 90-year-olds who could beat me in an athletic contest, and there are 60-year-olds who are unlikely to survive a presidential term. Our current president seems to eat about nine cheeseburgers a day, never sleeps, and barely moves, all in his 70s. I'm not sure he will be able to make much of the age criticism, and if he does, Bernie Sanders should challenge him to a game of one-on-one basketball. That is actually a great idea. <laughs> yeah. I like it. It's really good, yeah. Yeah, and he does, you know, he ran track. He ran long distance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so it's a great metaphor. See, I was just say, I don't think it's as, yeah, I agree. I don't want to nominate a guy who's 70, so, you know, I don't think it's a great right. idea. But the fact is, you know, we're, we're trying to defeat Trump. This is what we have to do. And so you might have to accept that <laughs> because there's all alternative. Right. Wow, I didn't know this about uh, Joe Biden and integration. Yeah, so uh, we actually had a, a, a contributor write an article about the history of Joe Biden in the seventies on uh, busing and and uh, on busing issues, where he was uh, he, he poses today as if he was a champion of integration, but actually was uh, was, was really had a horrible record on this at the time. Okay, so another article you have while you you sip on your mint juleps and and eat your gumbo is uh, someday Donald Trump will be as respected as Ronald Reagan. Yeah, people think it's crazy, but it isn't. Uh, You're right. An unbelievable amount of words has been produced from liberals and leftists on why Donald Trump is an aberrant, incompetent, and evil man who should not be running a country. And there have been plenty of calls not to normalize Trump by forgetting that he is these things. For my own part, I have sometimes suggested the opposite, that Trump is actually not terribly different from many other U.S. presidents in his actions, and that he would actually fit well into the contemporary Republican Party if he wasn't such a vulgarian. Perhaps what I should most fear, though, is that people start to agree with that, to see Donald Trump as just another president. As we continue the inevitable process of getting used to him, perhaps people will start to forget why they were ever outraged and begin to think, well, you know, he's not so terrible after all. And after all, he believes in bipartisanship. This is what has happened with George W. Bush. That's one of, I think, like, it's a really disturbing thing that we see happening now, this normalization of actually awful people. Yeah. Because they're not Trump and they have a different affect. So... I think, in retrospect, it's very easy to forget what people actually like. And mm. Ronald Reagan is now routinely voted the number one American president of all time uh, by the American people, most respected. And at the time, Ronald Reagan was considered by many to be an airhead who knew very little and conducted his presidency in a fog. Um, and routinely lied and destroyed the truth. Um, but the thing is that the propaganda machine is very effective at making uh, heroes out of demons. And um, I, I think it could work with Donald Trump. I, you know, I, I, I see it. I see it because I see what ha- what's happening with George W. Bush. George W. Bush, an objectively yeah. horrible human being, responsible for a war that killed 500,000 people, and today, people are nostalgic for for him. If you get right. someone worse than Donald Trump, and I know today that's inconceivable, but in you know a previous time it was inconceivable that you'd even get Donald Trump. So get ready right. to conceive the inconceivable. 
Um, right. If that someday happened, you get this. You just get the same thing over again. When looking back on it, you know it would seem relatively better. And then, uh, you know, uh, she trumps through the haze of nostalgia. It just happens. It's what happens with these with these monstrous people. This is great. Yeah. Yeah, delightful. Great. Yeah. Tell me if you're in New York at any point. Absolutely. And if you stop by the Crescent City, uh, come to your Awesome. Bye. Thanks so much, Dave. Great. Bye. Bye.